you, Dan. Good morning, Trinity Church. Good to be with you this morning. Looking forward to the fifth Sunday. And if you're confused about that, it's just an extended fellowship time. Bring food if you want to bring food. Don't bring food if you don't want to bring food. Don't make it harder than it is. Just come and hang out and enjoy one another. And we're looking forward to that on October the 29th. It's good to see several faces I do not recognize. After service, after the service, I will be standing for a little bit of time down that hallway. If you don't know me and if I don't know you, please stop by and introduce yourself. It's good to see my friend Jeff Schlecht in the house. That is not Ed Schlecht's twin. That is his brother, but not his twin brother. And he, he and I play basketball twice a week together. So if you want to know what I'm like, not at church, ask Jeff Schlecht. And it's, it's not a pretty thing. It's not, it's not pretty. It's good to see you this morning. And it's good to be uh, with you, singing with you. I appreciate to hear God's people sing. And I hope that your heart was encouraged and convicted and lightened, encouraged, uh, pointed to the truth by what you were singing this morning. I will confess, Before the Throne of God is, is probably my favorite song. And uh, I love that song and in uh, the truth of that song. If you would, please join me in standing. We're going to read God's Word in Genesis chapter 3. That's where we are. If you are visiting with us this morning, we are in Genesis chapter 3. We have spent the last several weeks in Genesis 1 and 2. And today, we turn our attention to Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to read verse 1 through 8. Verse 1 through 8. Please follow along there as I read. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 through 8. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. A few weeks ago, I had that experience that many of us have had. I woke up in the middle of the night with my heart beating fast 
short of breath, scared, out of my mind. And I looked around, right, as my eyes were trying to adjust to the darkness and felt next to me my wife sleeping soundly and realized that it was just a bad dream. Just a bad dream that felt real. I was sure it was real. But what a relief to wake up. What a relief to wake up and my eyes adjusted and I could feel my, bo- my wife's body next to me and realize she's okay. The kids are okay. The house is okay. Our lives are okay. It was just all a bad dream. But man, my heart was racing and my breath was short and I felt like it was real. It's a nightmare. This morning, as we turn our attention to Genesis chapter 3, and I want you to hear this, we are going to see, played out for us here in Genesis 3, a nightmare. A nightmare that is real. A nightmare that is our reality. This chapter, Genesis chapter 3, this chapter presents to us our reality. It shows us our own heart. It's an understanding. It it gives us an understanding of ourselves. You want to know how you think? You want to know what goes on in your heart? You want to know your condition? Genesis chapter 3 gives us our nightmarish condition. We come to chapter 3 on the heels of Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1 and 2 presents to us glorious truths about God. We, we talked about the historicity, the historical veracity, the truthfulness of Genesis 1 and 2. The historical veracity of Genesis 1 and 2 is not to be given away. Genesis 1 and 2 tells us the truth about who God is and who we were made to be. And if we don't see this as true, we are lost. Genesis 1 and 2 gives us the truth. And what do we see is true? What we see in Genesis 1 and 2 is that there is only one God, one and only one true God who has created everything. God has created everything by his authoritative and powerful word. And everything he does is good. It's too easy to read these first two chapters with the lazy eye of familiarity. Right, you heard about this in Sunday school. You could tell me what was created on each of the six days, yawn, right? But in fact, when we peel back and we we pull off the scales of familiarity and we look at Genesis 1 and 2, what we see is that God is powerful. His word is is powerful, it is authoritative, and everything he does is good. God is good. Let your eyes see what is true about God. 
God is good and His Word reflects His goodness and its authoritative creating power. He has made everything out of nothing and He has made all things good. Chapter 2 ends with a sacred and harmonious marriage, an exceedingly good marriage. Man is man and woman is woman and it is exceedingly good. Adam and Eve are one flesh. And we, we come to the end of chapter 2. Do you see the description there in chapter 2? Look at a verse 25 of chapter 2. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They stand with nothing to hide. No fear of exposure. Do you fear exposure this morning? Do you fear being known? Are you afraid people are going to find out who you really are? Do you spend your life hiding and putting up boundaries and putting up obstacles for people to actually get to know you because you're afraid? Do you stand before God afraid? That was not the way it was in Genesis chapter 2. They were naked and unashamed. Nothing to hide. Nothing to fear. Completely exposed. Completely vulnerable. And it was good. They had complete, unhindered fellowship with God. What a blessed state. But chapter 3... Chapter 3 opens with the introduction of a new character. A character, a serpent. And very rarely in the Old Testament, Old Testament narrative, does the narrator give such explicit characterization. When you're reading narrative and the narrator stops to tell you or give you a characterization of a character, you want to pay attention to that. That's exactly what he does here. The serpent, look at it there in verse 1. The serpent is said to be more crafty than any other beast of the field. That word crafty in the Hebrew is actually a playoff the word for naked at the end of chapter 2. What the author is doing is he's tying in the innocence, the innocent state, the naked and unashamed state of man and woman at the end of chapter 2. He's tying that in with the craftiness Something is about to happen to disrupt this innocence and it's connected to the craftiness of the serpent. Moses is drawing attention, the reader's attention, to this serpent and what he brings into the story. He wants the reader to pay careful attention to this serpent and what he does, what he says. Now you may ask, Where did this crafty serpent come from? We see very clearly here in Genesis 3 that he is created. Created like all the other beasts of the field. But what separates him is his craftiness. Now it's important, I think, to understand that Moses Moses is not writing into his narrative an explicit statement about Satan. 
But what we find out as we read scripture is that this serpent is indeed Satan, the great opposer of God. Revelation 20 verse 2, the very end of the Bible. We see Satan referred to as the devil, that ancient serpent. Now you you may ask, how did Satan get there? How does Satan fall? We know that God doesn't create anything evil. All things that God creates are good. Satan at some point had to fall into sin. The scripture doesn't tell us explicitly. There are a couple of places in the Old Testament that people allude to or point to to describe Satan's fall. Isaiah 14 is one of them. And what we find out, we're not going to go into this, but Isaiah 14 doesn't actually detail this fall of Satan. Okay, It's a mockery of the king of Babylon, in fact. But Ezekiel 28, I think Ezekiel 28 does give us some clues as to the position of Satan before his fall and what happened to him as he was cast out of Eden. But I I want to say this and I want to move on. Most of what people think about Satan and his fall, most of the tradition that people possess, most of the tradition people think comes from John Milton's Paradise Lost. I don't know if you're familiar with that poem. John Milton writes his Paradise Lost and he pulls from biblical themes and uses biblical concepts to paint a picture. But most of what we think about Satan and his fall doesn't come from the Bible. It actually comes from Paradise Lost. It's very important. So with our familiarity sometimes, we have this pre-understanding we bring to us with us to the Bible and we force that on the Bible. We need to be careful of that. All I will say is that, once again, we need to guard ourselves from speculation. So often, speculation and fixating on things that are not explicitly taught in Scripture is an obstacle to us and a hindrance to us. What we can know, what we can know about evil is that it doesn't originate with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were not created sinful. Evil doesn't originate with Adam and Eve We also know, I think more importantly, evil does not originate with God. Evil also, very important, we need to understand is is not a rival, a true rival. It doesn't doesn't possess equal power with God. The, The universe is not a good God and an evil God trying to combat one another with equal power. No, God is God, and God alone is God. There are no other competitors. Satan, then, is a created being. And unrighteousness, as we see in Ezekiel 28, which I referenced earlier, unrighteousness originates in him. That's all Scripture seems to to give us. And this is what we need to be satisfied with. The serpent, empowered by Satan, enters the garden. And look at at who he engages. Did you see it there? Look at where he goes first. He approaches the woman. He said to the woman... You see, already, already, Adam has neglected his role. 
Already, Adam has neglected his role and responsibility. Eve is put in a compromising position. She is put in a place where she should not be. Adam should have intervened. He should have stepped up. In fact, over all this text is this glaring question, where is Adam? The one God has given rule and authority over the garden, the job of protecting and keeping the garden and guarding it, where is Adam? You will see in a couple of verses where he is. Throughout, he doesn't say a word. He doesn't move a muscle. Chapter 3 opens, and the roles and responsibilities of man and woman explicitly given and detailed in chapter 2 have already been abandoned. That is why you will see in the New Testament, Paul referred to Eve as the one who has been deceived. And... He will refer to Adam as the one who is to be blamed for the entrance of sin into the world. Romans chapter 5. As by one man sin entered the world. And death by sin. But notice also the tactic of the serpent as he approaches the woman. Satan doesn't make a statement. Satan asks a question. Look at the question. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Seems harmless enough. Serpent just wants clarification. Eve, correct me here if I'm wrong. I I heard... Is it, is it really true that God isn't going to allow you to eat of any tree in the garden? Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Is that what I heard? In his question, he is undermining Eve's trust in the goodness of God. He is also twisting and perverting the clear, authoritative word of God. The journey to sin, and this is what we all need to understand. The journey to sin for each one of us begins with a question of God's goodness and a question regarding the clarity of God's word. We question his goodness and we question his word. See, under, underneath this question, underneath this question is a heart that says, is God? God good? Can you really can you really trust him? 
The voice of temptation rarely comes dressed up like temptation. Did you know that? It's not easy to spot. Temptation is not easy to spot. It's the seemingly innocent question. But the serpent has subtly called into question the goodness, the generosity. Did did God say you can't eat of any tree of the garden? The generosity and gracious blessing of God is called into question. And he has twisted and perverted God's words. In fact, he has turned them upside down. Isn't this what we do every day in our minds? Life is so hard. Why is life so hard? Why are things so difficult? Does God really care about me? Does God really see me and know me? Does he really love me? His, his word is so hard to understand. I read it and I don't get anything out of it. I'm missing something. The serpent's tactic here is to dislodge Eve from the clarity of God's word. In other words, what kind of God would place you in this garden with all of this abundance and keep you from it, Eve? What kind of God is this? You see, in the clarity, the clarity of God's word, and it is clear, it is abundantly clear, God's word is not hidden from you. In the clarity of God's commands, in the clarity of his word, we see his goodness. We see his love. Remember, as we saw last week, God's commands are always for life. God's commands are always for good. And if you don't see how a command is for your good, that's not his problem, that's our problem. Our inability or unwillingness to see. His word is always good. But now the serpent has acted as if the voice of God is not abundantly clear. And with this, he has called into question God's character. If, if God loved you, he wouldn't deny you the things that would make you happy, would he? Now, right here, right here, Adam should have pounced. Right here, Adam should have intervened. Adam should not have let his wife even, even entertain this serpent. He should have jumped in and ended the conversation right there. But he doesn't. And she continues to engage. Now notice the next step on the path. The first step down the path to sin is a questioning of God's goodness and a questioning of God's clear commands, his clear word. The second step on the path to sin is the embracing of a legalistic spirit. Explain what I mean. Look at, look at what happens In her response, listen to Eve's response. In verse number two, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, 
But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now, now notice, she summarizes the command of chapter 2, but it's insightful for us how she summarizes that command. Go back to Genesis chapter 2. And look at verse number 16. Look at, look at what God actually says. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely, you could, you could translate that freely, you may freely eat of every tree of the garden. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. It's all yours. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Remember last week we talked about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is that idea of autonomy. What God is saying is autonomy is not good for you. Trust me. You can have everything. You freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. But then look at what he says as a consequence. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The consequence is certain. Now listen again to Eve's word as she translates, interprets. Eve, in her answer, shows that her heart has already started to side with the view of the serpent. Look at it there. She says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. No, that's not what God said, Eve. So you see how she, she lessens, she lessens what God has given her. She leaves out the fact that they are free to eat of every tree. She just says, well, we may eat of the trees, fruit of the trees of the garden. She also, this is subtle, she also refers to the Lord God in the same way the serpent does. In chapters 2 and 3, the Lord God is the one commanding and acting and initiating. But the serpent just refers to him as God. And Eve picks up this language. But God said, no, Eve, the Lord God, the covenant-keeping God, the good and gracious God has said, So her view of God has been slightly adjusted. She also fails to distinguish that the tree that she is prohibited to eat from is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She just simply refers to it as the tree in the midst of the garden. She fails to call it by the name God has given it. And by so doing, she distorts even his reason why for not having them eat of this tree. And then, this is so subtle, she strengthens the prohibition. Did you see that there? You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. Did God say that? Did God command them not to even touch the tree? No. 
She's adding now to what God has said. And she lessens, she minimizes the consequence. She leaves it with an openness that God did not give. God said, in that day, you will surely die. She says, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. We, we could die if we do this. One commentator, one commentator says it this way. In Eve's answer, get this, Eve disparages the privileges given to her by God. She adds to the prohibition and she minimizes the penalty. She disparages the privileges. She adds to the prohibition and she minimizes the penalty. In her restatement of God's command, she betrays that something has happened in her heart towards God. She does not view God as good and generous, but instead as stingy, harsh, unfair. In Eve's mind, she has already turned from believing God's goodness and his heart towards her. Or, maybe, was it Adam's failure in communicating the word? You see, Adam was the one who was given the command in Genesis chapter 2. Who was responsible for communicating that to Eve? Maybe it was Adam who failed to communicate clearly to Eve. Maybe she's just saying what she heard from Adam. Either way, we see that this is a legalistic heart that has crept up in God's creatures. That is where legalism comes from, by the way. Legalism, I said this yesterday, the guys at the faithful men. I, I, loved, how, I loved how Dan said that. We, yesterday we gathered with the faithful men, which means the, rest for, you know, means the rest of you, I don't know who you are. But anyway, no, it was, it was a good time. It was encouraging. But I said this yesterday, legalism, it's not a minor issue. Legalism, I believe, is the pastoral issue. Legalism is the primary issue in all of our hearts and lives. You say, oh no, 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 it's not legalism, it's antinomianism. All these people that are throwing off the law and just living as they want. But you've got to get this, before you become an antinomian... You've got to first be a legalist. In fact, their legalism is what leads them to throw off the law and command of God. The legalist. The legalist first fails to see God's heart towards them. Disparaging the privileges God, the God of Genesis 1 and 2, he is good and his blessings are abundant. He has given everything. The legalist does not believe that. God is a miser, stingy, demanding, high expectations this God has. And we must keep them. 
And the legalist is pretty proud of how they can keep these very unreasonable commands of this harsh and stingy God. I, I, can, I can meet this God's standards. Why can't the rest of you losers? That's the heart of the legalist. And with this, the legalist adds to the prohibitions. This is what the Pharisees did, right? The Pharisees added to the prohibitions. They added to the laws of God. And they didn't, they didn't add laws for people's good. No, they, they added laws for their own exaltation. Because they saw God as stingy, demanding, harsh, The legalist is always putting words in God's mouth, making commands where there are none, and minimizing then the penalty of sin. Isn't that true? The Pharisees were whitewashed tombs, ignoring the clear sin in their own life while looking and judging other people's sin. That's their way of covering themselves over and making themselves look righteous. This is the heart of legalism. Eve is on her way to believing the next words that are going to come out of the mouth of the serpent. And here we have them. Verse number four. The bait's been taken. It's time for the serpent to set the hook. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now the serpent blatantly opposes the clear words of God. He doesn't lead with that, but that's where it's ended up. And he quickly gives the reason for calling into question God's word. He quickly gives the reason. It's because God knows that when you eat of this fruit, your eyes will be opened. And you, you will be like God yourself. In other words, in other words, God is lying to you. God is lying to you. God is insecure with this fragile world that he has built around himself. He is insecure. He is threatened by you. He's protecting himself. He knows that when you eat, your eyes will be opened and you will be like him. And and God doesn't want that. God doesn't want you to be happy. God doesn't want you to be fulfilled. God wants to keep you in your place. He wants to keep his thumb on you. That's, That's what God wants. He's not to be trusted. He's trying to keep you down. He's hurting you. Adam, Eve, it's time, the serpent says, it's time for you to realize your potential. It's time for you to be who you were meant to be. It's time for you to follow your heart and fulfill your dreams and pursue what you want. It is time. See, this is actually the anthem of every age. It's the anthem of our age. It's the anthem of everyone today. Many see Genesis 3 as the triumph of man. Finally, 
we've thrown off this harsh, demanding, stingy God who is insecure with himself and needs all the attention. Satan offers them freedom. He promises them freedom. Who wouldn't want freedom? But what they fail to realize is that they already had it. They already had freedom. Now, if Adam had any reason to wait before, he has his clear answer now, doesn't he? Adam... The serpent needs to be destroyed. The head needs to be cut off. His wife needs to be protected. He should have stomped on that head of the serpent a long time ago. And he he should have taken his wife by the hands. He should have looked her in the eyes. And he should have told her that he was sorry for letting the serpent get in. He should have said, honey, honey, what you heard from that serpent is nothing but lies. It's untrue. It's not true, honey. It's not true. Look at everything God has given us. Look how good God is. We already have freedom. We're already like God. We have everything. What you heard from that serpent is a lie. Think about who God is. Look at what he's given to us. Look at what he's created by the power of his word. This God, this word is to be trusted. We can trust his goodness. We can trust his word. That's what Adam should have done. But he didn't. The woman is still on her own. Satan, by the way, has not changed tactics over the years. Did you know that? Satan is not creative. Satan is predictable. He doesn't change tactics. Satan always goes after the unprotected. This is why... We, we don't want to do an excursus on authority. This is why God has given godly authority. It is not to hurt you. It is to help you. It is to crush the lies that you are prone to believe. Satan also always goes after the unprotected. He's predictable in that way. He goes after the wife who has a neglectful husband. Read the New Testament. This is exactly what happens. The false teachers come in, and where do they go? This always always makes me nervous. Where do they go? Where do the the false teachers go? They always go to the weak. They always go to those who are a little unstable, fragile, unprotected, without safety. That's where they always go. The woman who's been neglected by her husband. The son and daughter who are left to themselves. The isolated. The ones who don't see themselves in need of help. The leaders who are left unaccountable. You, you want me to fall? I can fall. Just don't hold me accountable for anything. 
and, and here's the truth of it. Every church I've ever been into, there are people here that already think I'm not accountable to, to people. That, see, those are lies. Those are lies that Satan gets in. You can't trust that authority. <laughs> He's not for your good. He's not for your good. I mean, he gets up every morning hoping that everyone will just worship him. He loves, he loves all the attention. You can't trust that guy. No. You want me to fall? Don't hold me accountable. I'm just telling you right now. You better hold me accountable. See, this is, this is what Satan does. His tricks are known. He's predictable. Now the serpent, the serpent has only said two things. One question and then one blatant untruth that actually has some truth mixed in with it, doesn't it? And, and, and this untruth has found a hearing in the heart of people that have already started to doubt God's goodness. He tells them, you will not surely die, which is kind of true. They don't die right away, right? Your eyes will be opened and their eyes were opened. They will know good and evil. And yes, they will. This is what will take place. They will know what they are not meant to know. So with hearts that are beginning to doubt God's goodness, mankind has no ability to discern lies that have been mixed with some truth. They have no ability to see clearly because they are doubting God's goodness and the clarity of God's word. Temptation is subtle. We think we can handle it, but we can't. Now notice the progression. Up to this point, up to this point, there's not been any action. It's just been a conversation. There's been words, there's been thoughts, there's been heart dispositions, and that's always sin. sin. And you hear this all the time, right, when we're talking to kids. Sin is anything that you say, think, or do that displeases God. Right? That's the definition you were given in Sunday school. But, but there's, there's a problem with that definition, only in this, that sin actually starts way before the saying and the thinking and the doing. Sin is first a heart's disposition. You say, why did Eve take that fruit? I mean, it would have been the easiest thing in the world. Just don't eat the fruit, Eve. Oh, it goes way deeper than that. It goes way deeper than that. There is a heart disposition that's been created. There's a heart's disposition that's been affected. And it begins with what we hear and see and how we process those thoughts, how we meditate. What is it that we're meditating on? What is it that we're thinking on? This is where sin comes from. These thoughts not held captive have led her to some conclusions. And that's, this is what I've said before. Your thought life, your thought life, your, the life of your heart is the most important part of you. You've got to do battle in your thoughts. Eve has been brought to some conclusions. Look at what it says there. The woman saw that the tree was good for food. Up to this point, it's been God seeing and declaring things good. But now it's the woman. She has seen and she has declared it to be good. In her estimation, she sees that this tree is good. She sees that this tree can satisfy her hunger the lust of the flesh. 
she saw that it was good for food. Her flesh wanted to be fed. Did did you know, really quick, sin doesn't taste bad. I mean, think about it. If sin tasted bad, you wouldn't want to eat it. Sin tastes good. At least in the mouth, right? Sin tastes good. It's the after effects where the rottenness and the poison evidences itself. The lust of the flesh, you saw that it was good for food. This is going to taste good. And why would God want to keep anything like this from me? The lust of the eyes. Look at what it says. She saw that it was a delight to the eyes. Sin, again, tastes good, but it also looks good. Sin doesn't look like poison. Sin doesn't have the the skull and crossbones on it. It looks pleasing. It looks satisfying. And then the pride of life. The pride of life. She saw that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. It will take her where she wants to go. This will finally bring me to where I want to be. It will make me like God. See, sin always resonates with a wrong view of self. A disproportionate view of self. All of these, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, all of these describe for us the sin of covetousness. What God has given me isn't enough. I long for that which God has kept back from me. And covetousness, Eve's eyes and desires were now driving her instead of the clear authoritative commands of God's word. She was not listening, but she was seeing and she was desiring and she was motivated by her desires. God's goodness has been rejected and his word has been questioned and her heart is filled with covetousness. Really quickly, do do you know who else was tempted in this way? In scripture, who else was tempted just like this? But where Eve and Adam were given every advantage. They were given a perfect environment. They were given a perfect circumstance and they failed. There's one who was put in a very, very hard situation, no advantages in the wilderness. Jesus. Jesus was tempted in these same three ways. He was starving. He had no food. And Satan comes to him and says, turn that stone into bread. Don't you want to eat? And you can do that? Satan then goes and shows him the kingdoms of the earth and tells him that all those kingdoms can be his. Look at these kingdoms, Jesus. Look at the power you will have. And then Satan takes him to the 
top of the temple and tells him, throw yourself off and have your angels come and rescue you and everyone will see it and everyone will worship you because you are awesome. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. But where Adam and Eve failed, Jesus succeeded. And how did he how does he succeed? He entrusts himself to the one who judges justly. He entrusts himself to the goodness of his father and he holds fast to the word. That's how he succeeds. But Eve, filled with covetousness, she takes the fruit and eats. Verse number six, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. There he is. We found Adam. He, he was not anywhere to be seen. There he is. He's with her the entire time. Unbelievable. Staggering, really. Right there with her. And he takes with her and he eats. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. Just as the liar promised, their eyes are opened. And what does it bring them? They knew now that they were naked. They saw their nakedness now. And this nakedness brings shame. This nakedness brings fear. Their knowledge brings them shame. Sin. Sin always gives you what you think you want. Doesn't it? Sin will give you what you want. But after you get what you want, what you will realize is this is not what I wanted. That nightmare that you can't wake up from. I created this for my own life. I'm the one. I sinned. And I got exactly what I asked for. And it's not what I wanted. (laughs) That's what happens in sin. And they knew they were naked. And what do they try to do? They take fig leaves. Have you ever seen a fig leaf? It doesn't make a good covering. They take fig leaves and they try to put them together and make for themselves coverings. What sorry excuses for covering. This is their attempt to self-atone, self-cover. And what a, what a sorry covering they provide for themselves. And this is all that we can do with our sin. We try to cover ourselves. We try to hide ourselves. And we cannot. We seek to cover up ourselves, justify our sin, minimize our sin. Notice they don't run to God. Notice that when they sin, they don't run to God. Why? Because they, they still don't believe in his goodness. And this is, this is our heart, right? When we try to deal with sin, so much, so much of our life, we are trying to deal with the guilt and the shame of our sin in the wrong ways. Trying to cover ourselves, justify ourselves, minimize what we've done, 
calling sin some other name so that we can feel better about it, comparing to other people so we don't look so bad, making those people out there really, really bad so that I can feel a little bit better about myself. These are all sorry coverings. Because of their shame, they run and hide from the presence of God. They've exchanged the glory of God and his presence for shame. They have exchanged the naked and unashamed for cowering in the darkness of the garden. They've exchanged trust and joy with God for fear. They now live in fear of this good God. They can't approach him anymore. Here then is the nature of sin. It is always, get this, okay? Sin is always a distortion of God's word. It questions the clarity of God's word. Did God say? The heart of sin leaves out important parts of clear commands, often adding to what God has said and seeing God's word through eyes that distrust his motives. Sin always, 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 always diminishes the consequence and the surety of consequence for sin. Maybe maybe it won't be that bad. Maybe it won't happen that way for me. And at the heart of sin, at the heart of sin is refusal to see the goodness of God. Is God really good? Is he really for me? And this distrust of God's goodness leads you to believe that God has lied to you. God is keeping back from you. He's holding back from you what you need in order to be really happy. He's spiteful. He's mean. doesn't care. And this creates in you and me a covetousness, a desire and longing for that which has not been given to us. In sin, the word of God is doubted. The character and goodness of God is doubted. The lies of the enemy are believed and the lusts of our heart are treasured. We take and we eat along with Adam and Eve. And then we are filled with shame and seek to cover our tracks and our guilt with our own efforts and justifications, our own harshness, our own self-righteousness, We run from God. We hide from him because of our sin. This is our state. This is who we are. This morning, I don't know where you're coming from and I don't know what you experienced this morning or what you've experienced in life necessarily, but you come in here and I'm telling you right now, your life, your life is a continual effort to to manage sin. How are you managing your sin? Are you fighting it? Are, are, you, are you taking God's word and a view of his goodness and fighting the good fight against sin? Or are you lazy? Are you isolated? Are you unprotected? Are you full of yourself? Full of your own abilities? making light of sin and its consequences. 
If sin is the fruit of doubting God's goodness and distorting or denying his word, then how do we fight it, right? How do we fight it? We fight it. How do we fight sin? More rules? Let's put in some more rules. No, no, that's not how you fight sin. How do we fight sin? We've got to get our eyes on the goodness of God. We, we need to get our ears unplugged to hear God's clear word. And we don't just need it today. We need it tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day. And if we don't pursue it with everything we have, we will be deceived. We will fall into sin. That's who we are. Where do we see his goodness? Where do we see and hear his clear word? His word that is life. Where do we see it? Where do we see his goodness most clearly? Where do we see it? We see it in the word made flesh. That's where we see it. He has not left us without a witness. He's not left us without a view of his goodness. He shows us who he is in giving of his beloved son. That's how we see who he is. You want to see who Jesus is? You want to see the goodness of God? Look to the cross. Look to the cross and you will see it in his payment for sin. See it in his resurrection. See it in his wonderful, glorious righteousness. See it. I want you to hear this. God, Christian, God is still the God of Genesis 1 and 2. He has not changed at all. Did you know that? Yeah, if you're reading Genesis 1 and 2, you're like, oh, oh, look at this. Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't that be amazing? We just live in Eden like that. Genesis 3 doesn't change who God is. In fact, because of who God is, he must judge sin. Do you know his judgment against sin is actually a pouring out of his goodness? He cannot comp- compromise his goodness. Genesis 1 and 2, the God of Genesis 1 and 2, he is still God. And you know what? This is the glorious thing. Because we wouldn't come to him, because we are the people just like Adam and Eve are going to hide in the garden with coverings that we make for ourselves, because we're not going to go to him. He came to us. He came to us. He came and put on flesh and became man for us. Because we wouldn't go to him. And then he says to all of us, he says, come, come to me. Come to me. Come experience my goodness. Come experience life. You say, no, 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 because I've sinned. I'm going to be judged. No, no, God is good. And he wants you to be saved. He wants you to enjoy the Edenic rest with him. He wants that still for you. So he says, come. Oh, he wouldn't accept me. You don't know how good he is. You don't know how good he is. Maybe you spend every day thinking God is mad at you. Maybe you've sinned for the thousandth time and you come to him again. You say, God, I, 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 I sinned again. And you think God is just sitting there with his, his arms crossed, rolling his eyes, tired of you. No, that's not who he is. He is good. And he's so glad you came to him. And he wants to cleanse you from your sin. He wants to help you defeat your sin. He wants, he wants to defeat the devil. And the sin that remains in you, that's what he's doing. And if we look at his goodness, 
And if we hear his word clearly, he will do it. He says, come. And you know all he asks, maybe you're here this morning and you're not in a right relationship with God. You say, what do I have to do to make God happy? You can't do anything to make God happy. God is eternally happy. He doesn't need you to do anything for him. He is good always. What do I have to do to get on God's good side? Oh no, 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 no. That's not the way it is at all. No, he is good. All he asks is that you lay down your sin that is causing you death. Just lay it down. Lay it down. Put it down. Turn from it and come to him for life. He gave it to you in his son, Jesus Christ. He's provided life for you in his son, Jesus Christ. And all you have to do is take it. Take it. That's all. Eve in the garden, she believed what was not true. She saw the fruit. She took it and she ate. Ligon Duncan, who's a Presbyterian minister. Presbyterian, can we? (laughs) Presbyterian minister down in the South. He made this connection at a T4G conference several years ago and it it was just life altering. Eve takes of the fruit and eats it. Jesus comes and he sits the night before he goes to the cross. He sits with his disciples and he breaks the bread. And what does he do? He hands it to them and he says, Take, eat, this is my flesh, this is my blood. Take it and eat it. It will save you. Take, eat. The fruit of death is swallowed up by the bread of life. And it's there. Take it. Eat it. And you will live. Father, thank you for this word this morning. Thank you for your mercy towards us, your goodness. Thank you for your word. You have been abundantly clear. You have given us your word and we have it right here to see and to hold and to hear and to treasure. Oh God, we confess to you that we leave your word and we fill our minds and hearts with so many other things, even good things, podcasts and books and other things, but we don't have a hunger for your word. Forgive us for not realizing how good and how life-giving it is. Forgive us for believing a lie about who you are. Thinking of you as a God, a demanding, stingy, miserly God who just is waiting for somebody to finally do it right. God, you provided the only one who can do it right, and he did. He has won salvation for us, and all we have to do now is to let go of our sin, to turn from our sin, which brings us death, and to believe and trust in your goodness that you've displayed in your son, Jesus. I pray that even today there would be salvation for several here today who would, who would need to turn from their sin and trust in Jesus for their way of salvation, his death and resurrection. And I pray for every Christian here who already knows Christ, but who lives too defeated too often because they forsake your clear word and they doubt your goodness and heart towards them. Save us from our legalism. Save us from our stinginess and our harshness and our judgmentalism. I pray that you would rescue us, cause us to worship you and serve you with all our hearts. Amen.